This is pages 98 through 122 continued. Um, you may hear some that I've already read. My time ran out on my recording and I am just trying to guess where I might have left off. I had a miserable night. I went a little overboard in my hydration and had to get up three times to pee. Then it seemed that I had Every time I started to doze off, a boulder from the slope let loose, causing me to sit up in terror as I waited for it to crush us. But the worst problem was my throat. By morning, I felt like I had a hard-boiled goose egg lodged in it. With all my tossing and turning and peeing, I don't imagine that Sanjo got much sleep either, but he didn't complain. On a bright note, the morning was as mild as the previous morning, and Holly was much improved. She managed to walk to the mess tent to have breakfast with us. The night before, Zopa had served her dinner in her tent. The herders and yaks left an hour before we did. They would go straight up to ABC without stopping at Camp 2, which should give you some idea of the kind of shape they were in compared to us. JR came up as I was packing the tent and said he wanted to do an interview with me before we headed up. Sunjo and Zopa were packing up Holly's gear. I had already done several of these interviews down at base camp, and I dreaded doing any more. I've discovered that a camera in my face and a microphone boom dangling above my head turned me into a babbling idiot. Just act natural, JR would say. Be yourself. Right. Then he would give me little prompts like, what's it feel like to be up on the world's greatest mountain with your dad? Or how does being up on Everest compare to climbing skyscrapers? I would try to answer the questions with straightforward honesty and end up spewing forth the, mo the most incredibly lame answers imaginable. I stopped packing and joined the crew, trying not to look too glum. They had positioned the camera in front of the rotting slope, and, it was up, and I was up all night listening to the slope belch boulders. Will made me squat, pulled the hood off my head so he could see my face, and wiped off all my glacial cream, which I had just carefully applied. Man, wouldn't it be great if one of those boulders let loose while we're doing this, Jack said. He was the sound guy and was always hoping that something horrible would happen when the film was rolling. Okay, JR said, we're going to keep it real simple today. I just want you to repeat what you said yesterday about the yaks and porters. That was really poignant, and you are absolutely right. I don't know if they'll use it in the final version, but they sure ought to. I was thrilled. In fact, during my sleepless night, I had thought about what I had said and wished they had the camera rolling. JR gave the cue. On three, two, one, tape rolling. I opened my mouth and nothing came out. We're rolling, JR said impatiently. The camera batteries didn't last very long in cold weather. I tried again, but nothing came out. Any time peak? A boulder's coming loose, Jack said excitedly. Come on, Peek. I pointed to my mouth and shook my head. My voice was gone. J.R. swore. That boulder's ready to pop, Jack said. I think it's going to miss us, but it will definitely be in the frame. Zopa, J.R. yelled. Can you come over for a little stand-up? Zopa shook his head and pointed at Sunjo. Let Sunjo do it. Get out of the frame, Peek, J.R. shouted. I moved, and Sunjo quickly stepped into my place. We're still rolling, J.R. said. Talk about your feelings toward the mountain, Sanjo. Maybe something about your father. On three, two, one.
My father came to Sagar Matha when he was my age, son Joe said in his cool accent. He started as a porter and worked his way up to become a Sherpa and an assistant Sirdar. He told me that he climbed mountains, so I would not have to. But I think there was more to it than this. The boulder Jack hoped would fall did, along with a ton of other debris. Sanjo did not flinch or even glance behind him at the mini avalanche. He just kept talking, and J.R. kept filming. My father was a stranger to me, but here on the mountain, I am getting to know him through the conversations of the Sherpas and climbers and porters. I came here to see the mountain, but what I'm discovering is my father. Beautiful, J.R. said. It was beautiful, and I hate to admit it, but I was a little jealous of Sanjo's smooth performance. Unlike me, he was totally comfortable in front of the video camera. J.R. had never praised me after a taping. Of course, I was lousy at it, but still. Jack and Will were patting Sanjo on the back, telling him what a natural he was. I walked back to our tent and finished packing. I don't think they realized I had left. At mid-morning, the weather turned, with gray clouds coming in from the west and a bitterly cold wind blowing down the mountain. We had to stop and put on more layers of clothes. I covered my face with a silk balaclava and a wool scarf. My throat was no better, but I trudged on, one step at a time, stopping every half hour, unwinding my shroud to drink, and gagging on every gulp. Zopa walked behind us. He was still carrying walked behind us, still carrying Holly's load and gently coaxing her up the slope as if he were her personal Sherpa or something. I didn't know if she had hired him or promised to give him money to give money to the Tibetan monks or if it was something else, but without him, she would have been going downhill instead of up. It took us eight hours, half a mile an hour, to get to camp too. There were so many climbers there, we barely had room to pitch our tents. Some of the climbers were coming down from Camp 4 above ABC. Some were on their way up to ABC, and some were using the site as their base camp, which was hard to imagine because I could barely breathe. The film crew had to set up their tents on the far side of the camp from us. The camp was at the junction of two glaciers, East Rongbuk and Beifang. You couldn't see the Everest summit from the camp but there was a spectacular view of three other Himalayan peaks, Shanks, Shangjiang, and Lixen. There wasn't enough room to set up the mess tent, so we were on our own for dinner. I got the stove going while Sanjo walked down to, glacial, to a glacial pond to get water. By the time he got back, it had started snowing. We put the water on the stove and waited for it to boil, which was taking longer and longer the higher we climbed. I wasn't hungry, and I don't think Sanjo was either, but we both knew we had to eat. Sanjo asked me how I was doing. I tried to answer, but all that came out was a hissing croak. It didn't bother me that I couldn't talk. What worried me more was that the sore throat might be the beginning of something worse. There was a nasty virus going through base camp that had everyone in an uproar. If you catch something bad enough, your climb is over. As a result, the teams had circled the wagons by staying in their own camps and suspiciously eyeing the approach of other climbers as if they were plague carriers. Typically, one of the porters was accused of bringing the virus to camp as if the climbers were incapable of carrying a virus to Everest. As we waited for the water to boil, we watched 
watched Zopa set up Holly's tent, which she crawled into as soon as, as it was up. He then put up his own tent and started making their dinner. I was talking to one of the other climbers, Sanjo said. He told me that tomorrow will be a big test. He's been up to ABC and has spent one night up at Camp 4. He said if we make it that far, we should be able to make it to the summit. I should have been paying more attention to what Sanjo was saying, but at that moment I was having a minor crisis that had nothing to do with my sore throat. What was causing the meltdown was the fact that it had been a relatively easy day, but I was a complete wreck. You can never tell who the mountain will allow and who it will not. Zopa's words had been echoing in my brain all day, and I was betting that Mark Peak Marcello was in the not crowd, right beside George with the clogged heart and Francis of the Gamoff bag. Dr. Wu had been wrong about my conditioning, or else I had screwed myself up by getting dehydrated. But if that was the case, why wasn't Sun Joe suffering? I looked over at him. He was stirring the pot, chattering away like we were camped on a beach. The next morning, Zopa dragged us out of our tent before dawn. There was an, about a foot of new snow on the ground, but it had stopped falling. Hard climb today, he said, and we need to get up fast or there won't be a place to pitch our tents. How's your throat? I shook my head. My voice was still gone but I didn't feel any worse than I had the night before, which I considered a victory. Outside camp, we started up the trough, a depression that sits between two rows of jagged ice pinnacles that looked like giant canine teeth. The main path was well-worn and nearly marked by the, clearly marked by the yaks. Zopa had warned us to stay on the path. If you wander off it, even to pee, you could be lost forever in the ice maze. I promise this is the last time I'm going to talk about high-altitude bodily functions. Answering a call of nature on the mountain is a huge ordeal because at that altitude you can't do anything fast and you have to take off layer after layer of clothing. It can delay your climb by a half hour or more, which can ruin your chances of getting higher because bad weather moves in so quickly. This is why you try to take care of all this before you camp. Okay, so I am not going to be able to finish reading to page 122, but I am on page 119. Try to read the rest of it on your own.